0: Mark 14 is where we're going to resume our study this morning. If you don't have a Bible, uh, we have uh, multiple copies on that back table there, so feel free to grab one so you can follow along with us this morning. Uh, we're picking up where uh, Chris uh, left off last week, so we went through the first 11 verses of Mark 14 last week. We're picking up this week in verse 12 uh, with a really uh, timely and really transitional passage for us in the whole gospel narrative. So Mark 14 is where we're going to be. Um, If you have your Bibles open to there, go ahead and stand. We're going to read together from Mark 14. We're going to read verses 12 through 26 for our reflection this morning. So starting in verse 12, Mark writes, And on the first day of the unleavened bread, When they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, "'Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover?' And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, "'Go into the city, and a man carrying a water jar will meet you. "'Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, "'The teacher says, "'Where is my guest room? "'Where I, where I, I may eat the Passover with my disciples?' And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. This is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Go ahead and have a seat. And let's pray as we ask for God uh, to bless our reflection of this passage this morning. So, Father, now we just come humbly asking for you to give us wisdom. There's some uh, unique things that are before us in this passage, and so we want to be humble about those. We want to receive them together, but we also want to uh, sit in awe as we marvel at the, the grace and the mercy of Christ that is set before us today. Um, Help us to continually see Jesus uh, uh, in all of his glory and all of his magnificence as he's preparing to go to the cross to demonstrate his great love for humanity. Um, Help us never to take this for granted, but to really uh, come to it anew in ways maybe that we never have before. So uh, pray for uh, that greater clarity as we study together this morning. We'd ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, so last year, last year there was a, a question that circulated amongst small groups, and it was a question that actually, if I'm not mistaken, originated in one of the boys' small groups. Um, it was a dilemma question, and do you guys remember what that question was by chance? It was a unique question. It was a question of, can you really call an animal a pet if you're eventually going to eat it? Do you guys remember this? I'm seeing some head shaking, right? Okay. Yeah. No, it was a question of, can you really refer to an animal as a pet if eventually you are planning to eat it? I mean, this especially relates to a lot of people who are raised on farms, right? There is a natural connection that you have to, to animals that eventually you will plan to eat. So I'm kind of kidding. I'm just curious, right? So we didn't ever, I don't remember if we brought this before the whole group last year, but I would just love to see, straw poll here, okay? How many of you would say you can call that animal a pet if you were going to eventually eat it? Raise your hand. Raise it high. I want to, I just, if you're eventually going to eat it, you would, you would still call it a pet. Okay, so raise your hand if you're like, absolutely not. There's no way you can call it a pet if you're gonna eat it. Okay, that's actually interesting. That's about 50-50 on that. I'm not sure I expected it to be so evenly divided, right? it's kind of a unique concept now we understand that uh you know, some for some people there might be a survival instinct or a necessity right like you weren't planning to have to eat your pet but maybe there was something like circumstantial wise you know maybe an apocalypse or some type of survival situation maybe where that had to happen but uh it is a, an interesting concept to think that you spend time with an animal you give it a name right you you, you, you watch it grow up from birth and then eventually that becomes your dinner one night, right? It's, it is a strange concept. And it's one that I couldn't get out of my mind. For some reason, it was a question that presented itself as I was thinking about our passage this morning. And the reason for that is you think about the unique situation that's at play in Mark's story here. Here you have the disciples who are... Dining with Jesus, who is eventually going to present himself as their sacrificial lamb, right? You have these people discovering that this teacher that they had walked with, that they had talked with, that they had lived uh, in just intimate relationship with for these past three years, was now presenting himself as their sacrificial lamb at the Passover feast. Right? You have him in this passage saying that, here, eat. This bread is representative of my body. Here, drink. This cup of wine is representative of my blood. And they start to realize, wow, Jesus is doing something really unique here. Right? This guy that we have loved and we have uh, spent so much time with is now presenting himself as the substitute for the meal that we are here eating. So what is Jesus doing in this very well-known, familiar passage to us? Well, I think the, the big idea that Mark would like us to see, and I would like us to see as we look at it together this morning, is this, that Jesus appoints himself as the new, I'm going to say even, and better Passover lamb. Jesus appoints himself as the new and better Passover lamb. This is uh, a very common passage, one that is familiar to most of us. Since it's one that's shared in all four of the gospel accounts. This is the the Last Supper, the final meal that Jesus uh, shares together with his uh, closest of friends, his closest of followers. Here, during this. Uh, important Passover week that he is celebrating with them in Jerusalem. And so we're going to unpack that a little bit together. We're going to go back through the story, uh, understand some of the details that are going on, and then draw some uh, important thoughts for us to meditate on together. So um, as we look at this, let's, let's break this passage up into three uh, different movements, three different scenes uh, together. I think the first scene that we see kind of unfolding for us Uh, is them looking for a host for their feast a host for their feast we see here in the beginning here in verses 12 through 16 the disciples are approaching jesus about where to eat and where to celebrate uh, the passover meal Uh, Notice here that they connect it in verse 12 with the uh, day of the unleavened bread. It's the first day of unleavened bread. There's a a very real sense where like, well, I thought it was the Passover. Well, these two ideas went together, hand in hand. By by first century, uh, when Jesus and his disciples, the the feast or the the day of unleavened bread really became like the first seven days after the Passover, uh, where they would remove all leaven from their households it was something that they they didn't eat at all uh, during that time. And those seven days kind of got tied into the first day of Passover that we see here. And so it almost became kind of like eight days. So these two things really go hand in hand together. And so it's interesting because we see them getting ready to celebrate also the, the Passover feast. So it's not that they're celebrating necessarily the, the, the first day of Unleavened Bread. It's really more about the Passover feast here, and you notice here it says it's when they pass uh, when they sacrifice the Passover lamb. There's a little bit of a debate as to what how this relates to the timing of Jesus and his death, right? So it was customary for uh, the Jews to on the Passover to sacrifice the lambs in the afternoon, and then at nightfall actually celebrate the Passover meal. Well, it's kind of interesting because Jesus who later will appoint himself as the new Passover lamb, doesn't die until Friday afternoon. And you're like, well, so how does this work timing-wise? And there's a lot of different views, a lot of ways that people try to uh, kind of reconcile these things. I think uh, some idea with the Jewish calendar is helpful. A lot of times the northern Jews uh, understood their days as starting in the evening times, whereas the... uh, southern jews saw their days starting in the morning at like 6 a.m so it was a kind of difference in how they celebrate things which honestly when you have so many people who are coming to jerusalem to sacrifice lambs that's that's a lot of work to do and so it's actually not a big deal for them to kind of spread that out over the course of two days they were more than happy to accommodate because of uh, the full schedule here and so i don't think there's any reason we have to doubt what was happening all this kind of thursday friday is an understanding of the celebration of the passover together so everything appears that jesus and his disciples are about to eat what we would call the true passover meal that afternoon there were sacrifices going on at the temple to prepare for the meal that a lot of especially the northern jews which is where jesus would have been from in galilee would have been celebrating together everything in this indicates this is a real passover meal this is not some different meal Um, we'll talk about some of those reasons why but Um, one of the reasons here is the fact that the, notice it's not Jesus initiating thing. It's, it's his disciples, right? Notice here that in verse 12, his disciples come to him and say, where will you have us go and prepare to eat the Passover? Right? They understand, Hey, uh, we need to get preparations ready for you. So where are we going to do this thing? I mean, if he was going to arrange something ahead of time, he would have just done it wherever he wanted to. But the disciples are worried about preparations because these preparations were important. They took time, but they also had to be done inside the city gates of Jerusalem. This is a really important thing that the Bible prescribed, that if you were going to observe the Passover feast uh, with the Jewish community, you could not do it outside the gates of the city so Jesus, remember, he's staying with his friends uh, in the town of Bethany, which is two miles outside of Jerusalem. So, I mean, if they were going to do something different, they could have just done it there. But he, they, they're understanding, hey, we need to go and find arrangements inside the city to be able to celebrate this. Now, you can imagine Jerusalem, its size grew significantly during the time of the Passover feast, right? So you think about special celebrations that happen. Uh, and how much the, the size of the, the community grows. So think about like Times Square on New Year's Eve. You see all those people packed into such a tight place. Or you think about uh, people who celebrate Mardi Gras in New Orleans and how much the population swells. Uh, I learned years ago, how many, do we have any NASCAR fans in here? I'm not a NASCAR fan, but like, just for the sake of, does anybody know what NASCAR is, by the way? Sorry. Okay, good. All right. So you're like, NASCAR but NASCAR it's a sport you drive cars you race them that's basically the essence of it uh there's a town in Tennessee called Bristol Bristol Tennessee and there's a famous race that happens there every year so Bristol is not a very large city in Tennessee in fact I think it's like the 24th most populous city in Tennessee which you're like that's not very significant at all but on race day Bristol's population swells to the size where it becomes the third largest city in Tennessee. So that tells you how many people come out for that race. It's the same idea with Jerusalem here. Big city to begin with, but swells to huge size. Uh, or as Chris said last week, you can relate it to Morton around pumpkin festival time, right? Uh, we get this. So it's uh, because of that, it's not just easy to find space right they didn't have their airbnb apps back then they couldn't just book these things reserve them ahead of time uh you had to find space there's lots of preparation you had to get uh the the space lined up you had to get the lamb sacrifice you had to get all the spices and the bread and uh, i mean it's no small thing but the first step was finding a host for it Uh, and it was jewish practice uh especially if you lived in jerusalem to have your home ready for anybody during the Passover season. So (laughs) I just think about that being a really unique thing. Like that was just common. They understood that back then, but could you imagine today, uh, just knowing that maybe what's one of our holidays, like Independence Day, right? Something that's very uh, associated with America, right? Could you just imagine that around, uh, if you lived in like Washington DC and you understood that, hey, when 4th of July comes around, Uh, Just be prepared to have your house ready for anybody to show up and dine with you, right? Like our kind of natural individualistic American culture like chafes against that. We're like, ew, gross. Like just have strangers show up at my house and just eat and do their thing. No, thank you. That was not uncommon back then, right? To just say, okay, who can we have into our home to celebrate this feast that commemorates such an important time in our history and so Jesus here, he sends two of his disciples. Other gospels tell us this is Peter and John who are working together, and they go on a mission, and the mission is honestly kind of weird. He says, go into the city, and you're going to find a man carrying a water jar. And when you find that man, uh, just follow him. Just follow him all the way back to his house, right? You, I'll give you permission to stalk this guy. Uh, all the way, you follow him back to his house, and then you can ask him about uh, having our meal there. Um, kind of interesting, but you're like, so how is he supposed to know, like, who to find? He says, find this guy carrying the water jar. Well, in this culture, guys didn't typically do that. That was actually something usually reserved for the ladies. They were usually the ones who were found carrying water jars, so to say, you know, Look for somebody carrying. Look for a dude who's carrying a water jar. Would be akin to saying, "Hey, look for the guy who's carrying the like fluorescent colored purse." Right? I don't know, but something that like easily distinguishes this guy is the person we need to to go after here. So very very interesting, um, and they he do, they they do exactly that. He gives them that that instruction. They're supposed to go to this person. Say the teacher uh, needs the space. Uh, This room uh, is to be his guest room. In other words, Jesus is saying, like, listen, I'm going to be the host of this meal. You need to go to this person and tell them that I'm ready to present myself. Now, one interesting thing that we might be able to connect, I don't know for sure, but there is some reason to believe that the person carrying this water jar and the person whose home they go to because of what later accounts would say and because of just kind of the mystery around this some believe that maybe this person was actually John Mark, the author of the Gospel of Mark himself. We don't know that for sure, but there's potential reason to believe because uh, we're going to see next week, or two weeks from now, when Scott Cruze is here, you're going to learn in verses 51 and 52 about a young man who was following the disciples that night uh, to the garden and he flees away naked. Yes, the Bible does use the phrase naked. Very weird. You're like, what in the world is happening? Why is there just this random insert about this dude? I'm pretty sure this is John Mark's humble way of saying that this was him (laughs) in the story. And you're like, how was he following them? How did he know? Well, if he was in the house with them, if he was uh, somehow associated with the early church that met in the upper room, there's reason to believe it could have been him. We don't know, but it's an interesting detail to consider. And I'm putting it before you for you to say, hmm, maybe. So they the, the cool thing about this is that they do exactly what Jesus said, right? They go into the town, they find this guy and notice verse 16, the emphasis here. They found it just as he told them. Just as he told them. Every single detail played out exactly the way Jesus said. Some people think, well, maybe Jesus prearranged this with this guy ahead of time. I think that's stupid, personally, because I think it does away with the whole idea that God is a God who works things together, right? He orchestrates things the way that he wants to for his purposes. And so what we see in this story, and from the very outset here is this sovereignty and authority of Jesus on display. He is the one who is in control. After all, he is the one who is going to lay down his life for the sake of others. Nobody takes it from him. He is the one who lays it down himself. And so we see even from the very beginning, as he's beginning to put this plan in motion, that Jesus is the one who is in control. We begin to see that play out even more here in the second movement of our story where we see a traitor in their midst. We see a traitor who's exposed to be in their midst in verses 17 to 21. Evening comes and they arrive at the home of the Passover meal, the host for it here. And notice they, they take their spots and they're reclining at the table. Now, we often get in our minds the, the picture of the Last Supper, thanks to Leonardo da Vinci, that uh, has, you, you've probably all seen it, you might even have a picture of it in your house, for all I know, right? The, the very nice, uh, serene picture of everybody on one side of a table, right? Because that's awkward. All looking at Leonardo da Vinci as he paints their picture, right? That's, that's not what it looks like. That's not how it happened, right? So they weren't, they weren't doing those things. In fact, it probably looked something more like what you see in this picture here, right? So you see the guests all reclining around this table here. It would have been maybe more of like a U-shaped table, And I think this gets the idea of how they uh, surrounded themselves, how they recline at this table. Uh, There's good reason to believe that how they would have structured this for especially a meal of this sort where the host would have been like this person right here. And the two people to the right and to the left are those who have the places of greatest honor. So there's good reason to believe that this was probably uh, John, right? So the uh, writer of the Gospel of John, uh, who was known as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And there's good reason to believe that the other person on the other side of him right there would have been Judas would have been the one who was actually going to betray Jesus. So it's at this point in the story, they all take their positions, they're all seated around the table, they're starting to, to dip into the meal itself, and Jesus kind of drops a bomb on this whole meal. For the first time, and I, and I say for the first time because it doesn't feel like the first time to us because we've known ever since the beginning of the gospel when He's listing off all the people who follow Jesus. We even see there that Mark lists Judas, like most of the other Gospels do, where it's like, Judas, you know, the one who betrayed Jesus. So we've known, we, we have history on our side, we've known this for years about Judas, but for the very first time ever, the disciples, as they're all sitting together, hear Jesus say, listen, the one that I've been saying that I'm going to be betrayed into the hands of of Gentiles and to, to foreigners. That person who's going to betray me, he's actually, he's here right now. Okay? It was very vague every time leading up to this. This is the first time they've heard that. I mean, think about, <laughs> verse 19 says they began to be sorrowful, right? Like, what a, what a downer of a way to start celebrating the Passover meal together. Right, one of their own people is going to be a a traitor. And notice they ask him like, who, "Who's it going to be?" We're going to talk a little bit more about the significance of that later. But Jesus specifies to them, "Hey, it's 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 one of the twelve. It's one who uh, who who is dipping his bread into the dish with me." In other words, this is a person who is dining with me. And dining in that culture, guys, you have to remember there was actually kind of a precedent that. When you eat with somebody, you're extending peace to them. You're extending fellowship. You're extending unity and harmony and trust and friendship, right? You don't betray the people that you're eating a meal with. And so that that just stands in complete contrast. It flies in the face of anything that they would have done in that culture. This is Jesus' way of saying, like, listen, man, I, I had you at my birthday party. I, you, were, you were one of my closest allies, right? And you are one who is going to betray me. Now, Mark doesn't get into the details that some of the other gospel writers do where Jesus eventually uh, sends Judas away. They don't even still understand what Judas is doing leaving. They think he's going to buy more food for the feast. Like, it's all still a mystery to them. And yet, verse 21 tells us that just like in the opening part of our passage, Jesus is the one who's in control here. Everything... Even though this feels like a complete twist in the plot to the disciples, Jesus is basically saying this is all unfolding according to God's plan. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man for whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. In other words, the fact that this is happening as it is written, you know, the Son of Man, the Son of Man is described in the Old Testament as one who is victorious, who is honored, who is glorified. And so we're like, well, where is it written that the Son of Man would do this? Well, the Son of Man doesn't, but the suffering servant, like what Isaiah writes about in Isaiah 53, the one who would be crushed for our iniquities, he does suffer. He does endure shame and scorn and betrayal by those who are close to him. And so this traitor thing, even though it seems like a complete twist to them, was exactly what God was using to accomplish his purposes which leads us then, thirdly, to a change for their past. A change to their past in verses 22 to 26. And what happens next is what most have come to refer to as the institution or the start of the Lord's Supper. Something that we still do in the, the church today. Uh, we'll talk about that a little bit more later here. But what, what typically happened at the Passover meal? How do we understand what's happening here? What Jesus is doing with what actually would have happened at the Passover meal, most of us have not taken part in a Passover meal before. Have any of you ever done that before? may have you done like one of those like seder meals that they do? I, I know years ago I did, but that was more about the food, not the whole unfolding of the dinner we don't we didn 't do it for seven hours. Thank goodness that would have been quite the meal i 'm sure but Tradition tells us that the Passover meal revolved around four different cups of wine, four different cups that basically symbolize different movements in the meal, right? So you go from one to the other. The first cup happened at the very beginning. So uh, everybody would arrive and the host of the meal would would bless uh, the cup uh, basically for the day that the Lord had given blessing the Lord for the feast, kind of like you would do before you would start a meal together. And then they would drink the cup before the food would actually arrive. So step one, that's how it happens. Cup number two would have happened after the meal was brought in. Uh, When the food starts to arrive and get set around the table, the youngest person, the the youngest of the, the community that was there was dining. Usually if this was a family, it would have been the youngest child, would ask the host, which was usually the father, You know, why is this night so different? Why do we eat this food? And the host would uh, share then the story of the Exodus, tell the story of God's deliverance, and how God used the different pieces of the meal that symbolized different parts of their deliverance from the hands of Egypt. And so we would recount these things. They would sing a couple of psalms together, and then they would drink that second cup. And then that third cup, which would happen actually after they ate the meal, uh, the host, sorry, actually, not yet. So cup number three, the host would bless the unleavened bread that was there at the meal. He would break off a piece of each of it. Sound familiar, right? And he would give it to each of the persons who was at the meal. And they would eat it together. And they basically, that was the commencement of the meal that they would eat together. And the third cup would be eaten at the conclusion of eating that together they would then sing some more songs together some more psalms that associated themselves with the exodus and then the fourth cup would be the one that concluded the meal basically they would be dismissed at that point it would be symbolized to say it's over so what's how does that match up with what jesus is doing here well we get to the timing of that third cup of wine right this is about the time when Jesus is going to distribute the bread and and Jesus goes off script here because usually when the bread was blessed and it was handed out to each person you would eat that bread in silence in kind of reflection and memory time but Jesus if this was about the silent game Jesus would have Jesus would have lost the silent game because he breaks the silence while they're eating which again is off script and he declares, this that you're eating, this here is my body. This, this what you are doing, is, is representative of my body that has broken and has been divided for, for you. And if that's not strange enough, he follows that with that third cup that they're supposed to, to drink. He gives thanks for it. And he has them all drink from the same cup, which is very different. Usually you would have your own cup, but he passes it around. They all drink from that same cup together, certainly not COVID-friendly by any means. And he declares that this is his blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Now, it seems weird to us, and it would have been a complete shock and an aversion to the Jews in the first century because Jews had very strict Laws against blood. They were not to eat anything that had blood in it because blood was symbolic of life, right? All the way from Genesis chapter 9, God said, like, listen, you can eat of animals, but you cannot eat anything that still has its blood in it because it is its life. And so this would have been a shocking thing for them, right? This is a big no-no. Obviously, it's not literally his blood, but just the statement itself is like, this is... Weird. This is very contrary to anything that we've ever known or experienced before. Thus, in referring to it as his blood, it implies this is his very life that is being given. But more than that, blood was used in the Old Testament to seal covenants. Covenants were were promises that God had given. So we think about today, we would seal promises together. Maybe we might sign a piece of paper together, both agreeing to something. Uh, if you're a kindergarten, kindergartner on the playground, you would seal that with a pinky promise, right? Or something like that, or kick the feet, or whatever you guys do these days. I don't know if you do that, but. but the Jews would have understood. They would have thought about God's covenant people, right? Their minds automatically went to God's covenant with Moses when God entered into a covenant with the people, the Jewish people, to become the nation of the, the Israelites, where blood was sprinkled on the people to cover them and to begin understanding a new covenant that they were entering in together. It was one that was significant for them. And so Jesus is telling his disciples that his blood would be similar yet different. Luke actually says that this new covenant is in his, this, this is the new covenant in his blood. In essence, Jesus is saying the shedding of his blood would start a new covenant that would do away with the old way of things. What you've known and associated before, it's being done away with because what I am doing by giving you myself is I'm starting something new. And that idea of a new covenant is significant because the old covenant was based on, hey, you are my people and I will bless you when you are obedient. But if you are disobedience, then there will become consequences. This new covenant was something that the prophets from hundreds of years before had uh, warned was going to come one day. One day God was going to start a new covenant. He said, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord, Verse 33, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. A law not written on stone tablets, but a law that is written on the hearts. Something that is a true change. As Ezekiel puts it, I will give them a a heart of flesh that is soft and and knows the Lord, not one that is hard towards him. Of course, the, the biggest change that we learn about this later is that this covenant extends beyond the house of Israel. This is something that God offers not just to the people of Israel, but to the Gentiles, to all people of all nations. covenant that jesus is referring to here in his blood is the free gift of salvation to all who believe in him by faith that they will be saved through his death and resurrection and live by his holy spirit right that's the way he's talking about this change in the heart the holy spirit is kind of that game changer that he promises to change hearts that he will dwell within them forever and so the meal concludes And as if this Passover meal wasn't different enough, Jesus goes off script one more time in verse 25. He chooses not to drink the last cup. Notice what he says there. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. Instead, verse 26, they sing the final songs and then they leave. And that's a big deal since the fourth cup was known to be the blessing of the Lord who would gather his people to be with him forever. But Jesus knew that this wasn't going to happen for some time. The focus of his message was on what had to happen with the third cup was that he had to shed his blood. He had to share his life. It had to be broken again. A future day would come for cup number four when he would drink it new with the people of God in the kingdom of God for all of God's people gathered in a final celebration. He says, that day is not yet. That day is not yet. That day will come, but it's not now. And so this concludes perhaps the strangest and most memorable passover meal the disciples had ever eaten and with all its intricacies there are still plenty of things for us to consider as we reflect on the passage today the first of which we begin by understanding that as we look at the life of judas i think this is so important for us as we think about what jesus said with G- with judas here at this meal and it goes back to what chris talked about last week that blending in with christians does not mean that you are truly in Christ, right? There's a huge difference there. In fact, there's a huge danger in trying to blend in. This is kind of that difference between being by Christ and being in Christ, to be by Christ implies proximity, meaning you're around Jesus, you're around his people, you associate with him. But that doesn't mean you have a relationship with him. To be in Christ, as the Bible describes it, means that you are truly united to Jesus in faith and trust and obedience and submission to him. This was, the, again, the first time Jesus said there was a traitor in their midst, and guess what? Not a single disciple. Listen, not a single disciple suspected Judas. This is one of the most mind-blowing things to me that, I've, as I've studied the Bible over the years, and because we always know who the traitor is, we think to ourselves, "Well, why wasn't it that obvious?" I mean, Judas is this really bad guy, obviously. Except for the fact that it wasn't obvious. It wasn't obvious. Here's, here's the kicker for you. Every single one of the disciples suspected themselves before Judas. It's not like Jesus said, hey, one of you guys is going to betray me, and they're like, hm, obviously it's Judas. We all know this Jesus. It's, he's the likely choice, or Peter, right? Because Peter's always opening his mouth, right? Like they're not, they're not quick to point the finger at others, which is funny because they always were quick to point the finger at others until this moment, and then they're like, well, surely it's not me, right? Like, it's surely not me. They all suspected themselves before Judas. That tells us that Judas played his part incredibly well. He blended into the Christian crowd. Judas had been given all the same opportunities as the rest of these guys. He had been blessed by instruction under Jesus. He had been blessed to even be given power by Jesus to perform miracles. He had served alongside Jesus for all these years. He had all the same opportunities as all these guys did. But none of that means anything if you lack genuine love for Christ. It's one of the reasons I have a real heart for student ministry. Because, student, I can relate to how easy it is to blend in and play the part. Because I spent a really good portion of my life doing that. Most of the time when I was a student. I can relate to you in that. I understand that that's a temptation for you in all stages of life in many ways. To want to fit in, to be a part of the right crowd. And especially when it comes to church, you want to, to do the things that make you look Spiritual that that make you fit in amongst others. You don't want to set yourself apart. But do not lie to yourself the same way that Judas did for so long. Be honest with the true condition of your heart about whether or not you truly love Christ for the right reasons. This passage, as sobering as it is, it, it is a warning. There's a lot of celebration at the end of it, but there is a warning that we do need to consider within this. Right, lending in is a danger. So be honest with yourself this morning. Secondly, there is a mysterious paradox between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. I debated whether I was going to include this because it feels like it could be more confusing and maybe unhelpful, but I just I feel like it's appropriate. Uh, When I say paradox, paradox, you're like, wow, that's a really fancy word, but also kind of a cool word, right? Kind of a cool word. Paradox is just a a unique word that describes something that seems like a contradiction. And when you look at it, it seems like these two things can't go together. Uh, We see this, I think, at play in verse 21 where we see about Judas that it says that, This was something that was written about, that the Son of Man would be betrayed, he would be handed over. And yet at the same time, it says about this guy who would betray Jesus, woe to that man for what he chose to do. So we ask ourselves, what's going on here? Because when we talk about God's sovereignty, we mean God's plan or his control over things. Uh, By man's responsibility, we refer to Judas and his own personal choices. And so we ask ourselves, which of those things caused Jesus' betrayal? Was it the fact that God ordained for these things to happen? That God said these things were going to happen? Or was it the fact that Judas actually did those? That he, by his own choices, made the decision to betray Jesus? Which is it? And the answer is yes. You're like, Scott, that's how I ask. Which one? And the answer is yes. It's both. I don't pretend to be able to explain to you how both those things can be true, but we know that they are true because the Bible says so. And we trust God that he is good and he is right in how he puts those two things together. Because neither of them operated, Jesus or Judas, operated by blind faith or as a pawn on God's board. The Bible is clear that Judas made his choices, that he determined to make his own sinful choices manifest. Nobody else was responsible for this. And yet, at the same time, God, in his infinite wisdom and his infinite providence, uses such choices to accomplish his purposes, even turning the worst evil in human history, yes, the betrayal of God's Son and his crucifixion, into our greatest good. And student, the same is true still today as it relates to both our salvation and judgment, right? The Bible says very clearly that you are to repent and to believe, and yet we still understand that salvation is a work that God himself can only accomplish in your hearts. They are two things that the Bible holds open-handedly as they are both true. And there is a mystery to that. But it does not remove the part on your end of what you are called to do and what God is actually doing as well. It is God's work to save, yet remains something that we are called to repent and believe. Thirdly, communion. Communion is a meal designed to remember our common union with Christ. We could have spent the whole morning talking about the Lord's Supper or communion as it's also referred to. We, could have, we, we talked about it last summer. If you were in our summer study, we talked a little bit more about what this whole practice is. Uh, but the early church saw the significance of what Jesus did at this meal, so much so that it became a regular practice in the early church, uh, an early practice when that church is still continues. so it's something that's called an ordinance. It's a fancy word that just simply means it's a regular routine practice that the church does. And it is a meal to regularly celebrate and remember what Christ had done by offering his body and his blood for us. Right? We see this still practiced in churches today. Some churches have different ways of doing it. But the essence here is that this meal that Jesus was doing this night with his disciples... It was a a new meal. It was a a Passover meal for Christians. It did away with the Passover meal for Christians because the Passover was associated with the old. The old was doing away with In fact, one of the books I was reading this week kind of put up this helpful side-by-side. You don't have to to read or write this down here. But it shows the difference between these two ideas of what the Jews would have done with Passover but now what they were called to do in remembrance with, with Jesus and the Lord's Supper, Right? One was a festival celebrating the birth of God's people, the nation of Israel. The second one was celebrating, in many ways, the birth of God's people through the church, what God was creating now with this new community. Uh, Passover people associated themselves with their deliverance from Egypt, and the, the institution of the Old Covenant, whereas this new thing that Jesus is doing associated themselves with redemption, with Jesus and his blood, saving them from their sins and instituting a brand new covenant. And finally, the old one looked back to the Exodus and looked forward to God's future salvation, whereas now the Lord's Supper celebrates what Jesus did at the cross and looks forward to the final consummation, the final uh, culmination of all things in the kingdom of God. For today, what I want you to understand is that this meal is something that we do in community. This was not a meal that they were eating on their own. This was a meal that they ate together. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, if you want to write that down, it talks about the issues that the church in Corinth was having with their practice of the Lord's Supper. And really what Paul addresses there is that they were eating of that meal in a way that was selfish. It was very self-centered rather than others-focused. They weren't united. They weren't understanding the significance of doing this together as the people of God. While it is certainly a time of looking inward at yourself and reflecting on your own life, I think what this meal reminds us of is also it's a time for you to look around and to remember that this is a community meal, that we are all in this together, that God did not give you an individual mission, but he commissioned people Together, that you are in an army together doing this thing called the Christian life in community, not on your own, but with brothers and sisters by your side. Last few, we'll go quickly here, but fourth, Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This was the statement that John the Baptist made in uh, the Gospel of John, John one twenty nine. if you want to write that down. But, it's interesting that from the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, he was identified as the lamb. He was identified as the lamb. It wasn't, it just wasn't until this very moment that things began to be fully realized. You know, it's interesting to me that none of the gospel accounts ever mention the, the roasted lamb that they would have eaten at the Passover meal, Right? always talks about the bread, talks about the wine, uh, talks about a lot of these other elements, but it never talks about the lamb that they would have eaten that night. has led some people to believe that this wasn't a traditional Passover meal, but that just doesn't hold water, I feel like, with everything else that's going on. And so I want to just say maybe that was intentional on the part of the Gospel writers. Maybe one of the reasons the gospel writers didn't include that detail was to put our focus and gaze on the true and better Passover lamb that was truly at the feast that night. To see Jesus for who he really was as the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But the real lamb was not on the dining room table, but the real lamb was the one dining with them at the table. But not only is Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, Jesus is also the bread of life who fully satisfies all who come to him. Wrong kinds of satisfied up there. (laughs) This comes from Jesus' own words in John chapter 6, verse 35, where he tells uh, the people, I am the, the bread of life. I am the bread of life. We see this connection to what Jesus says at the Last Supper when he distributes the unleavened bread. And he says, this this bread is my body that is broken for you. Perhaps it reminded the disciples of what Jesus had said earlier in his ministry that he himself was the bread of life. Back then in John 6, when this was happening, people were coming to Jesus for physical bread. This comes on the heels of Jesus having just performed the miracle where he uh, fed the 5,000. Everybody had more than enough bread. People were so excited. They were all like, Jesus is king. Jesus is awesome. Let's go to Jesus for the bread. They wanted all the physical benefits of Jesus. But Jesus wanted to remind them when he makes the statement that he was the bread of life. He wanted to remind them that physical bread can never fully satisfy. You eat physical bread, you're going to be hungry again. He reminded that too. Satan in the wilderness, right? Man does not live on bread alone. You eat a bread, which is good, and you need it, you will hunger again. Student, in, in the same way, there are so many things that you may be chasing after in this life. It may be popularity, it may be acceptance, it might be grades, it might be awards, money, pleasure, family. I don't know what it might be for you. But like bread, none of those things are bad in themselves, but none of them can fully satisfy you. Which is why you need Jesus After all, he is the new and better Passover lamb. And as the new Passover lamb, Jesus, in his sacrifice, oh man, it is far better. It is far better for you. And I wish we had time to look at all the passages in Hebrews chapter 9 and Hebrews chapter 10 that really relate to this. But let me read a few for you this morning. Write these down. Go back and read them later. Hebrews 9. Verses 11 to 15. Notice this is what the writer of Hebrews says. He says, But when Christ appeared as the high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with human hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats or calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats or bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify the purification of flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from the dead works to serve the living God. Therefore he, Jesus, is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. He would go on to say in chapter uh, 10 verse four, "For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. In verse nine, he does away with the first in order to establish the second, and by that we will ha- we, or, sorry, by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus once and for all. How do these passages show us that Jesus' sacrifice is far better for us? The language speaks for itself. It is final, it is definitive, it is complete. Once and for all, it doesn't happen again. It doesn't have to keep happening in order for it to stay permanent. Student, if you are united to Jesus by faith, His his death has saved you forever. There is now no more condemnation. There is no more punishment for you. It also means that you don't have to do penance or to do good works to maintain that relationship. When you mess up, you don't have to beat yourself up. You don't have to punish yourself for your own sin. You can simply look to the cross and remember that your Passover lamb died to secure your place. As we close, I'm reminded of the song that we have sung at Ascend Camp many years ago. The line says this. It is finished. He has done it. Let your weary heart rejoice. For our redemption is accomplished. That's the new and better Passover land that we have in Christ. So, Father, thank you for our time reflecting on this passage this morning. Thank you for your grace to to put it before us to remember all the blessings that we have in Jesus. So please encourage our hearts this morning. Help us to run to Christ, who is the Lamb, who takes away the sins of the world, who is the bread of life, who fully satisfies us. Lord, nothing else in this world can do that. So help us run to Jesus today. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.